0: Hey guys, this is Mr. Van Wy, and welcome back to the Van Y AP World Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to cover chapter 25. Chapter 25 is titled Africa and the Atlantic World. The goal is to discuss, in the time period of 1450 to 1750, the early modern Africa and some of the impacts of Europe on africa specifically european merchants and traders and eventually colonization of africa what are their influences on them then the influence on the atlantic slave trade and finally the influence of the europeans on the americas and the african diaspora Before we begin, I actually want to start off with a few impacts, changes, and continuities that we're going to definitely see in this um, time period. So the first is that their trans-Saharan trade and Indian Ocean Basin trade will have continued involvement, one of them being a maritime trade route and the other being an overland trade route. The other is that the Atlantic world will influence Africa in various ways, whether that be its development, its trade, and also its culture. African rulers and merchants will also profit off of the slave trade. The slave trade that's going to uh, happen in Africa will impact not only those slaves, but the people that are selling them and those that are interacting with the Europeans. And despite this slave trade, the massive amount of Africans that are on the Atlantic uh, and Middle Passage on their way to the Americas, eventually even getting there through the diaspora, there still will be a population increase in Africa itself. And eventually, both the Atlantic and Islamic slave trade together will experience uh, differences in populations, especially in in, uh, relation to their gender. One of them in the West, mostly men are taken on the West Coast of Africa, while in the East, for example, like Mogadishu, one of the... Previously, Swahili uh, trading cities or states, uh, there's going to be mainly women that are taken. Okay, so next thing I'm going to discuss in the beginning is the development and decline of certain African kingdoms before and during their interaction with Europeans that make their way into more permanent settlement in Africa. So for part one, we're going to focus on interaction in Africa. The last time we discussed imperial authority in Africa, we looked at Ghana and Mali, and to pick up where we left off, we're now going to look at Songhai Empire. The Songhai Empire rises after Mali, and over the course of this as maybe the third empire in West African trading kingdoms, this one is going to be the largest of the three. And just as a continuity here, just as the other, um, the others also had an influence of Islam, this one as well will have an influence of Islam. The ruler Sunni Ali will be Muslim as well. And he's going to consolidate the empire, bring in important cities like uh, Jene, um Gao, and Timbuktu under his control. And again, like the others before, similar to Mansa Musa in the control of the gold. The control of the trans-Saharan trade is so important to these empires as it brought them some wealth and it brought them control of their people. So this trans-Saharan trade that they had control of, such as metal goods, salt, textiles, they were trading them for uh, gold and slaves. So this was something that went through the uh, the Sahara Desert and into Central Africa as well, and think of the Songhai Empire, Songhai Empire acting as a mediator between the two, intermediary. Just like the ones before him, too, the establishment of Islam in West Africa uh, made itself known through the building of schools, mosques, uh, the teaching of the Quran, and don't forget in West Africa, it was considered uh, Islam that was syncretic, meaning. They took on their own pagan traditions that also went along with um, Islam as well. If you remember Ibn Battuta and his travels discussing how things were very different in Africa than they were being held to the strict understanding and wording in the Quran, Um, their practices were a little bit different in Africa compared to uh, what they were in the whole Dar al-Islam. So... Um, Eventually, the Songhai Empire, though, will fall to um, Moroccans who had the use of gunpowder from the north. That's something we'll cover in another chapter, the uh, disbursement, distribution, and sharing of the use of gunpowder and integrating that into military strategy and technique. But eventually, we see the end of the imperial states that were really just so difficult at this point in Africa to maintain, especially when you have the interaction with Europeans. Once European merchants make themselves known and become a very important integral part of the oceanic trade and maritime trade routes, notably if we think of uh, da Gama and we think of those like Diaz who began to outline the path along the western coast of Africa, we now see oceanic trade replacing the land-based trade. And once the merchants from Europe are able to interact with those other merchants in Africa, a whole new market is created. This whole new market changes the power that, let's say, the Songhai Empire had on the controlling of trade routes and the controlling of trade, especially with taxation of the merchants. So once they have that under, uh, uh, underway, you now lose the power of the trade route. Now, it will still continue as far as the trans-Saharan trade route. Uh, that that trade will continue, but the control of it may not be the same. And what happens is when you really begin to see the end of some of these kingdoms and some of these imperial authorities in Africa, you go back to the continuation of the kin-based societies and kingships that existed um, beforehand and in other places but you will begin to see the end of imperial authority in africa and it will be replaced by colonial authority eventually from the europeans so moving away from west africa we can move a little further south into central africa and south africa so there's going to be three um, main areas that we look at in this part the first is congo the second is Ndongo and the third would be in South Africa with the Dutch. So once the Portuguese make contact, they're going to have influence on the Africans, not only through trade, through religion, but through a permanent settlement there. So first in the Congo, they're going to develop a relationship with the Portuguese mariners and traders. There's going to be a conversion to Christianity. So the king... King Nzinga uh, Mbembe, he is going to actually name himself and change to King Afonso I. And this king strictly followed Christianity. There was an important influence of Christianity through missionaries, and it also brought them a lot of wealth to have a relationship and exchange with the Portuguese. Now, when the Portuguese come they are going to establish a colony just just south of the Congo, and that's eventually going to be Angola. The Portuguese here pre- present a challenge to the Congo. It's both a blessing and a curse. Blessing in terms of that they're able to give them some type of profit and continued trade, while at the same time it could eventually be- become their demise. So, The exchange of weapons, textiles, and advisors, artisans, is an exchange for copper, ivory, and slaves. That slave trade is going to be extended, continued, and even more tenfold once they need more slaves in the Americas. And when they need more slaves, the Portuguese are going to try to take more power and eventually go to war with Congo. They're going to go to the war with Congo using not only their weapons and their advantage, but they're going to ally with the locals as well. This is very similar to how in the Americas, the Spanish and the Portuguese were able to conquer that Mexico and the Inca using local alliances that were out of favor with the Congo. So there's going to be some local uh, tribes, local uh, kin-based societies in Africa surrounding the Congo that not not necessarily were against them, but they weren't in favor of them. And using those local allies to fight them and take them over will help the Portuguese establish even more dominance in the west coast of Africa. So what they do before um, is establish a colony. So this colony, Angola, is through... Uh, the first kingdom of Nindongo, which was ruled by Queen Nzinga, this queen put up a forty year resistance and she was trying to resist the influence of the Portuguese and the slave trade and eventually uh, she falls to um, uh, she falls to her demise does not uh, she's not successful. And her goal was, hey, look, let's see if I can get the the Dutch on my side. If I get the Dutch on my side, take over the Portuguese, expel them, and then move onward and then go back on the Dutch and try to remove as much European influence in West Africa as possible. And she would even try to extend her realm of her empire as well. This backfires on her, and eventually it turns out that this is actually the site of where the Portuguese established the first European, European colony in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not only the Portuguese, I just, as I said, the Dutch also have some influence in Africa as well. The Dutch mariners move all the way to uh, South Africa and Cape Town by at least uh, 1652, and they're going to have interaction with uh, the... Koi Koi people, and they relatively have no resistance and take over with some ease, as these were more or less hunters and gatherers and didn't prevent uh, them from having much of a problem and taking over. So, with the Portuguese, with the Dutch, with Europeans in general, there's going to be uh, a change. And this change uh, in the West and the East will will affect not only the society, but the religion as well. So, for example, one of the uh, interesting syncretic historical developments in uh, Africa was in actually the Congo. So in the Congo, there is going to be a prophet, and this prophet, Dona Beatrice believes that... Uh, she has some type of divine intervention with uh, St. Anthony of Padua, which was a Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic saint. And she came out with some of her beliefs that heaven was just for Africans and that uh, Christ was a black African man. And this Antonian movement, which is considered a syncretic religion, blends African and European or Christian catholic beliefs together and this type of idea or break off of what was uh, catholicism is a perfect example of how some of the blending adoptions and stubbornness resistance of some beliefs interact in africa it's a true a true or really really interesting example of how these interactions have disrupted not only their cultural beliefs, their religious beliefs, but also um you know their their whole tradition as a whole. So this encounter uh will not only include Christianity, but there will also be some examples of don't forget at this time Islam that's affected Africa, especially in the east. And there's this one group, the Fulani, and the Fulani uh, differed in their uh, comparison with the tropical Africans who um, took on Islam but shared some qualities of their traditional beliefs and pagan beliefs and their cultural beliefs and blended them with Islam. But the Fulani were an interesting case because they were a lot more strict uh, than the traditional African um, blending. They actually didn't include some syncretic elements. They actually followed it as close as possible and often criticized those who did not follow it as closely and wanted to take them over. Um, So we have some developments of uh, Islam and Christianity in Africa that is blending with the traditional beliefs. As far as religion goes, as far as society goes, as I said earlier, there is going to be a change in population from fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred. It will almost um completely double in population despite again the movement of slaves across the Atlantic Ocean. in my next part i'm going to discuss the Europeans on the Atlantic Ocean themselves, so the Atlantic slave trade and how what were some of the nuances of it? What were some of the important uh key points and concepts to know on the middle passage and uh more or less bridging now africa to the americas as far as the atlantic slave trade goes so in the second part i'm going to discuss some of the aspects of the atlantic slave trade so the atlantic slave trade uh Mainly being the link between Africa and the Americas, as far as the uh, one side of the triangular trade goes. Uh, so slavery existed beforehand in Africa. I think that's really important to know that slavery, the institution of it, there already existed uh, before European arrival. So therefore, there were you know slaves in West Africa, like so the Songhai Empire, and. Uh, In Africa, the more slaves you had did mean higher status only because the wealth that came from food production was important. So if you produced more food and um, had more land, you generally had more status. And that came along with more slaves that needed to uh, till and harvest the um, land for food production. So the idea that slavery already existed in Africa, uh, as it did in other areas of the world as well, uh, showed that there was already a, um, a use of it and it won't change so much as far as the maybe selling or purchasing of it goes as the Europeans come in. It won't necessarily totally uproot and change the lives of those uh, who were exchanging slaves. So it made it easier for when Europeans to come in and purchase them and trade for them. Um, it just it just helped to bridge that that gap there. And it is not at all just only something that the Europeans did as far as coming in and trading for slaves. Right? It was also done by the Islamic uh, slave trade in the East. So the Islamic uh, traders and merchants in the Indian Ocean Basin also transported and uh, took slaves as well in those port cities. So this was mainly in the Swahili coast and they actually had raids on villages and were able to over, you know, the course of a few hundred years, uh, uproot at least 10 million African, uh, people into slavery. And this was more or less from the Mediterranean Indian ocean that they did this. Uh, but their yeah. So their raids were mainly, um, in hopes of trying to take as many as they could and, again, the idea of trying to make profit and sell them. Now, in the Atlantic Ocean, and the Atlantic slave trade, uh, there was more of a purchase rather than a capture. To them, this was easier. They did try to capture, but they found that it was actually better to to, uh, purchase them and trade for them. So this starts mainly in the in the West in the Americas when the Portuguese needed to have some labor and their labor was uh, important to them, especially since that a lot of the European countries were very small. They're not sending over a lot of colonists or people to islands and plantations. It just did not make sense for them to move as much permanent settlements and people into those areas. So the use of labor Will be important to them, so we're, they're going to be using here the slave labor from Africa. And this can be seen through Angola, their colony, and moving them to Brazil. Portuguese end up being the largest, um, the largest consumer of slaves. We see Brazil as being the most, uh, where the most slaves end up uh, in the African diaspora in um, in the west in the Western Hemisphere. And this was also the, importantly, uh, it was most importantly fueled by the sugar production. So the sugar plantations and production was fueled there. If you remember in the previous chapter, the idea that the Portuguese almost, uh, and they did do do so somewhat successfully, uh, not only produce uh, and harvest the, the sugar from the plantations, but manufacture it as well and process it. So... Once and over time, and once the, uh, the natives and indigenous population of uh, the Americas begins to decline, there needs to be some type of replacement labor. And this replacement labor is f- coming from Africa. The replacement labor uh, is important to, after the 90% of the population being wiped out due to uh, the disease that comes to the New World after the Colombian exchange, they need someone to fill the void and, and the gap. And it begins to become a problem when they also need to replace uh, continually uh, men because that's really who's coming over along the Middle Passage. Most of them are men. Two-thirds of them from 14 to 35 uh, made up all of the slaves. And since you're bringing over two-thirds right, two thirds of them are men, you have a void of a ratio of women, and they're not replenishing or having children. Therefore, let's say the mortality rate, um, you know, maybe six to seven years, they last, you need to get another slave. So the issue here is that you do not have a sustainable population in the West. And many of them saw this as an investment. So they didn't actually purchase the slaves on the other end until they got to the Americas. So the Middle Passage generally took about four to six weeks. And in those four to six weeks, a lot could happen. Some refused to eat. There might have been sickness. And to them, it, it, you know, it's, it's the property. So since it's property, they see it as investment. And they don't want to lose out on the investment. They want to make money off of it. So what they do is essentially try to force them to eat or they try to keep them away from others that are sick. And early on, especially early on, they're really cramming them into these ships, which causes the high mortality rate. Early on, it was about 50% would not even make it over to the Americas. And eventually, this changes and drops dramatically. But overall, in the Middle Passage, in the Atlantic slave trade, about 25% of them uh, never made it. That's one in four slaves never actually even met uh, the uh, the land on the Americas, and in some years there'd be over a hundred thousand. Um, so if you think about that, you know, out of a hundred thousand in one year, there might be twenty five thousand that actually do not make it across the Atlantic Ocean. And in the Atlantic slave trade, it also impacted not only the Americas, but it also impacted Africa itself. Some made money off of this. Some of the African chieftains uh, were doing their own raids because they realize that there's wealth that they can make from selling them and uh certain places like Asante, uh Dahomey and the oyoyo people uh they make money off of this and profit uh, especially because of their location close to slave ports uh but others that are far away or distant from slave ports don't really get impacted too much by this for example rwanda uh So it's interesting just to see this, the idea of how uh, the success of the location, not only in West Africa but East Africa, like the Swahili states and and West Africa and some of the trading kingdoms, how important they were to their rise in wealth and imperial authority or, let's say, their wealth from uh, merchants and trade in the Indian Ocean Basin or the trans-Saharan trade route. And now, due to the European influence it in a is in a sense their downfall, being so close to the port cities, uh, due to the slave trade, and um, this is also fueled by those close to the uh, the port cities. In the other, the second, right, the second part of that triangular trade, where Europeans were selling firearms for slaves, and Africans were using those firearms. To even do more raids to get some slaves, so this is a continuation and like a cycle. Um, you know that's going to continue on uh, for a few hundred years after this. So in my next part, I'm going to discuss some of on the other end, right in the Americas. Uh, now that the slaves are, are over in the Middle Passage, what are some changes that happen to the slaves and to the people as they develop uh, a different identity? and they develop their own uh, culture in the African diaspora. In this last section, we're gonna discuss the African diaspora. And what I want you to do in this section is think about how many areas that the slaves will be sent to, how many different areas, and what interactions they might have in those areas with the local culture, mixed with the European control, And then also their own cultural identity, right? The baggage that they're bringing with them and mixing all those elements together to come to some, uh, unique then identity and cultural change. Now, despite where they all may go, there will be one similarity between them. And that is that they will all be living on uh, a plantation. This life on a plantation will be something that most of them will have in common, uh, the most of that, most common of that, was the sugar plantation. Uh, there will also be cotton. There'll be rice. There'll be mining as well. That'll be will be done. But the most common of that would be uh, the plantation. And on the plantation, conditions will not be great, right? There'll be brutal working conditions, overuse of um, of the people, on the slaves, and physical ailments, sickness, diseases that could come of this. So not just the natives that dealt with diseases, but there were also those that were Africans that come into the Americas. Now, life on that plantation also uh, was met with resistance. So slave resistance is something that came to fruition over time uh, after uh, slaves wanted uh, a way to try and change um, to the best they could their life. And uh, get out of slavery. Sometimes this came in the form of just working slowly, uh, trying to break the equipment, maybe running away, which was successful in certain areas. Uh, this group called Maroons were able to successfully run away and get to uh, a settled community on their own, which which govern themselves. more violent way would be revolts. And The problem with the revolts are that they would not necessarily end slavery, right? These rebellions, revolts would have a violent um, outbreak. It would cost uh, those owners and those plantations uh, definitely a large amount of wealth. Um, They were outnumbering, though, those owners, and they were outnumbering those Europeans. But again, it will not end it. But it will at least bring to light some of the issues with slavery. And their improper advantage of not having weapons will be the primary reason why they are not able to have a successful revolt or rebellion. Now, there are some exceptions to this. One of them being Haiti in 1804. Uh, Haiti, led by uh, Toussaint Louverture, they actually break from... Uh, France and gain their independence and gain uh, the abolishment of slavery. Now, just to discuss some things about uh, the diaspora and cultural changes. So some cultural changes include the language, right? The language mixing with uh, not only uh, the European, but their own and local. So for example, French Creole or Creole mixing of European and African language, uh, Gullah and Geechee. As far as language, you also have uh, religion. So most of the African secretic uh, religions that, that, uh, that come to light in the new world uh, have some inspiration drawn from Christianity. So they're syncretic, but they take elements of their own and take, you know, almost like a pick and choose. And we see this in voodoo. Uh, Centaria and Kendoble, whether it's in South America, it's in uh, Brazil, the Caribbean, um, it depends on where where they went to, and they had developed their own versions of this. And sometimes it's where you had African elements of deities and Christian saints mixed, and they all, again, as I said, develop uniquely. Um, Another thing was music. Uh, Music develops... Sometimes they use music to think of them their own property that they have ownership of that and they can develop that themselves and by them blending their music with European language um, arguably could be another form of resistance. Um, another change is food diet. Uh, the one example, you know, I've said or used was gumbo where you're using African okra, you're using European vegetables and American shellfish. Think about you're using one element from all of the three areas together in one dish. Um, we do see also some changes as, as the, uh, slave resistance, um, Existed, you also had some resistance from the outside, which was to try and remove or abolish slavery if possible. And one interesting case is Alauda Equiano in 1789 writes his own autobiographic book that explains his experiences on the middle passage as a young uh you know a child at the age of around 10 or 11 and also his life as a slave not only in North America but South America. He was both a slave in the West Indies and also in Pennsylvania and Virginia. And eventually he makes his way uh and wins his fr- and purchases his freedom uh in Britain. And his British uh his British life you have to realize in Britain, slavery was seen as something different. Soon after, about 15 years after him, he has uh, slavery is abolished. He doesn't actually see that abolished. He dies before that. But in Britain, there was no need for slaves. So therefore, this, the freedom of slavery, um, freedom from slavery in, in Europe was a lot different than it was at, that was delayed in certain areas like North America and in South America. So uh, this is one example where he was an abolitionist, and in Britain they did try to change and uh, get rid of slavery over time, and that was not true or the case for all Europeans, and it's not going to stop slavery at all, because you have to realize slavery is definitely something that is motivated by profit, and it's motivated by the uh, economy uh, or market. So if there is no market for it, that's what will drive the end of it, and Europeans started to realize this when, honestly, slavery was just too expensive. Uh, don't forget, they had to keep replacing it, and they had to keep making sure that um, they uh, had uh, the mortality they were, they were working with the mortality rates, because sometimes slaves only were able to live about six or seven years into their labor. And those were, of course, the ones that actually made it to the Americas. So this was in no way something that was very cheap uh, for consumers of uh, slaves who needed them for labor. And uh, once the Europeans realized that in manufacturing and in factories later on, they can pay less by using wage labor, meaning paying someone more like per hour um, than actually and using them only for a certain period of time then completely owning them and taking care of them and replacing them. Uh, And that's when the Europeans realized that there will no longer be a necessity for labor. Uh, Sometimes, you know, many argue that uh, inventions had, you know, even in North America, fueled slavery. Uh, Arguably, later on, slavery may be fueled, um, may end due to uh, technology and advancement or innovation. Uh, Overall, though, uh, we see in this chapter uh, three major things. The first is the impact uh, of European interaction on Africa. Then we see that interaction on the Atlantic, right through the Atlantic slave trade in the Middle Passage. And then in the Americas, once the African slaves have arrived there, what are some major changes through the African diaspora? Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Van Y AP World podcast. Again, a special shout out to uh, Hewlett High School uh, AP World period six.